Hello, and welcome to the Make Business Matter podcast, where we help you turn purpose into profit and customers and employees into passionate fans. I'm your host, Aaron Shields, partner and director of research for the Cult Branding Company. On this episode, we'll answer the question, what are cult brands? And we're also going to look at why you should want to create one, especially now. Brands exist on a loyalty continuum. All brands fit somewhere on this continuum of loyalty. Loyalty has always been the holy grail of marketing because loyal customers purchase from you more often. It's cheaper to retain customers than acquire them because you usually already have some way of contacting them, like a mailing list. And it's easier to get them to buy because they've already considered you a good choice and just need to be reminded of you as an option. So few brands are good at creating loyalty, even though they talk a lot about it and spend thousands or millions of dollars trying to create loyal customers. At the lower end of the spectrum, you have brands that exist in no brand land. This is where most small businesses are. They're stuck working in the business rather than on the business, and they never develop a solid idea of who they are or what they offer or stand for or how they can improve the customer experience. For small businesses, it's important to be working in the business, but some go too far, never really having an idea of what they tried to start in the first place. That's not to say you need to be fully aware of it right away, but you need to work towards it eventually if you're a small business. These businesses change what they do often when they see a new opportunity. They typically make the business all about them. Customer relationships are nothing more than a tactic, and they usually don't live up to fulfilling any customer relationship in a meaningful way. They don't worry about the customer. One step up, you have a leaky brand. This also is usually a small brand, but it has basic identifiers like a random logo or a tagline that doesn't resonate, a name, maybe some brochures, but nothing that's memorable about them. There's no consistency, and it doesn't stand for anything. One step above that, you have the average Joe brand. This tends to be large companies with a marketing department that spend money on advertising, but they have no strategy. They take the brand in too many directions, which dilutes the brand because of inconsistency. And as we talked about on the previous episode, consistency is one of the hallmarks of branding. One more step up. Another category of large brands are iconic brands. These are brands that are part of our culture. They're ones that are easy recognizable. They spend a lot of money on marketing research. They're top of mind brands. Brands like Microsoft, Dell, Pepsi, American Airlines. Many have quote unquote loyal customers, but they don't find the business irreplaceable. They're default brands. They exist out of convenience because people know they're reliable, even though they don't have any emotional connection with them. They don't feel like they solve a meaningful tension in their own lives. Finally, at the end of the continuum, we have cult brands. These are brands that have mastered the art of building meaningful relationships with customers. The customer is not only king, but part of the family. The customer is one of us. These are brands like Star Trek, Oprah, Jimmy Buffett, Vans, Apple, these are brands that are profitable even in the most adverse market conditions because of the powerful relationships they form with the customers. And you can apply the principles even if you don't want to go full-on cult brand. Because when you want to do really well at something, it's very useful to study the thing that does it the best and then extract principles from it that you can apply to your own life or your own business. And in this case, cult brands excel at branding. So studying them at the extreme end 
helps you extract principles even if you never want to achieve or do the work that it takes to get that level of loyalty. When I usually mention cult branding, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to start a cult. They think of things like Waco or Jim Jones. There's two types of cults, though. There's destructive cults and there's benign cults. And this is true if you speak to people who study religious cults for a living. There are destructive cults. These are ones with an authoritarian figure that has no accountability, sort of a superstar with absolute control. They hurt, they harm, and they manipulate their members for their own personal benefit. And many brands do act like wannabe destructive cults where they only care what's in it for them instead of the customers and employees. They attempt to manipulate the customer into thinking the brand is right. When a customer has a bad service experience, they'll say, that doesn't live up to our blah, 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 but then do nothing for the customer to actually live up to it. This is where a lot of loyalty programs fall. They fall into this destructive tendency. And loyalty programs is something I'll deal with in the next episode and how many loyalty programs do fall into this destructive tendency and mentality. On the other hand, we have benign cults. The only trait that they have in common with destructive cults is the level of devotion. In this case, the relationship is harmless or even positive, which is the case with cult brands. Uh, leaders are accountable and they value feedback. These benign cults are inclusive. They welcome anyone who wants to belong. Destructive cults, on the other hand, are exclusive, shutting anyone out who doesn't meet certain criteria. Benign cults help fulfill emotional wants and needs of their followers in a positive way. They get clear benefits. When it comes to cult brands, cult brands are benign cults. It isn't just about the followers. It's not a flip of destructive cults. It's a two-way relationship like any good relationship. When it comes to cult brands, the benefits are for both the customer and the brand. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. From a company perspective, it gives them a significant competitive advantage. They tend to be perceived as the high-value option in the industry. They often set the standard to be judged against. They command premium prices, which impacts profitability. They attract new customers at a higher rate and keep them for a longer period. They do business with customers more frequently. They're more likely to be recommended. They become not only the default option, but for their most loyal customers, the customers that we personally refer to as brand lovers, they become the only option. And these really loyal customers, these brand lovers, will wait rather than switch to another company if it's out of stock, if the product's out of stock. And they're also willing to pay a premium price because these brands have proved themselves over and over again to actually care about their customers and actually solve their customers' meaningful tensions. From a customer perspective, it's not about duping them. They're not idiots. They know they're giving you a benefit. They're paying you money, but they also know they're getting something in return for that money. They're not just giving it to some soulless enterprise that just treats them as a number and trying to drain them like a vampire of their money, but actually gives them something as a benefit in return. And people want these authentic companies that solve their tensions in a meaningful way. From a customer perspective, again, they have emotional wants and needs fulfilled, things like accomplishment and belonging. People like to be heard. It gives them a voice. People's self-image is enhanced. They see a brand that believes the same things they do, that they're kindred spirits. They see the company as like a surrogate family, as a support group of a group of people just like them that just happen to sell products and services to sustain the business that they do. 
they can experience a sense of belonging, both with the business itself and its ideals, and also with other customers that do business with the company. And this shared feeling of belonging is especially important in this current time where there's a feelings of a lot of disconnect. They can help people self-actualize. They can help them see themselves as who they truly feel they are. This idea of self-actualization was popularized by Abraham Maslow, but he borrowed it from a German neurologist and psychiatrist named Kurt Goldstein. Uh, Maslow wrote about it in his book, Motivation and Personality. In Motivation and Personality, Maslow describes self-actualization in this way. A musician must make music, and an artist must paint. A poet must write, if he is to ultimately be at peace with himself. What a man can be, he must be. He must be true to his own nature. This need we may call self-actualization. It refers to a man's desire for self-fulfillment, namely to the tendency for him to become actualized in what he is potentially. This tendency might be phrased as the desire to become more of what one idiosyncratically is, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. Uh, and if you haven't any, read any Maslow, he's great inspiration for business, and he does have some writing on actually the management of business in Maslow and Management, which was originally titled Eusyche and Management. And all people have this desire to self-actualize, and people are drawn to other people and brands that can help them move towards this ultimate feeling of who they should be. So when brands have the same values as a customer, when the customer sees the brand as believing the world should be one way and not this other way and solves the tensions in those people's lives that help them get to that other way, the way those customers believe the world should be and the way they should exist in that world, the customers gain a sense of a greater identity for themselves but also a sense of loyalty towards that brand because the brand has enhanced their self-identity, their feeling of self-actualization, and also truly believes the world should be the same way the customer sees it. It's a very powerful thing. Also, cult brands influence higher-level needs. Higher-level needs influence human behavior much more than lower-level needs. There's not an end to them. They always become a better version of who they are today. So rather than doing something basic for the customer by able to fulfill these these needs for belonging and self-actualization, the brand's operating at a much higher level than what other brands are attempting to solve for customers. It's solving this need for connection and this need to become, this need to become who someone truly believes they should be. Brands that fulfill higher needs are ones that become irreplaceable. True loyalty isn't just being chosen over and over. It's for that customer to also believe you have no equal and want to choose you over and over. Another question I get asked a lot is, what do people who belong to cult brands look like? They look like everyone. Just like cults, they can attract any person from all levels of society, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all races, all genders, any age. So cult brands aren't about demographics. They're about sharing values and ideals and reinforcing those values and ideals, which can be shared across all different types of customers. You just have to figure out which needs you're fulfilling for your specific set of customers, which tensions you're solving for your specific set of customers. So why is this so important right now? Uh, from loyalty, we kind of already covered that, that people who are loyal purchase from you more often. 
it's cheaper to retain a customer than acquire one because chances are you have them on a mailing list or some other way to contact them. It's easier to get them to buy from you because they've already considered you and you just need to remind them why you're a good choice or they're already very devoted to you and you just need to upkeep the relationship you've already established by doing what you do best and not wavering from that and doing that consistently. Second reason that's very relevant right now is resiliency. Cult brands believe in something. It's more than just selling a product. They believe the world should be one way and not another. And they really believe that their products are a vehicle for achieving this. This isn't something most brands do. Most brands are about profit lines and how far they can broadcast their message and how many new customers can they acquire and over and over again into this unending rat race. Um, and resiliency is really important right now because you see so many brands, when they were hit by the pandemic, start trying to scramble and do something new because they didn't know how to recover their business. And these businesses tended to be businesses that didn't develop strong customer bases and also businesses that didn't really know what they stood for and what they were trying to achieve in the world. And so they just kept trying to grasp on something new rather than saying, hey, this is what we stand for. What does this mean right now? And a lot of brands that have been successful or have pivoted back in recently are brands that had something they stood for and just reinterpret it tactically for the time that we're in rather than changing actually who they are. And brands that tried to change who they are took a big hit. So this idea of resiliency, because they know what they believe in and they know this is the way the brand has to be, they'll keep pushing forward and pushing forward and pushing forward. And this is something you see in cult brands. If you look at Harley in the 60s, it was terrible for them. Japanese motorcycles with lower prices and superior quality were outperforming them. Harley was cutting costs and developing a reputation for being unreliable. And then CEO Von Beals and a dozen colleagues bought out Harley to try to recover the brand. They did. They believed in it so much that they bought out a failing brand and resurrected it and made it into the motorcycle company that it became. Uh, another example is Gene Roddenberry. And this example is great because he failed over and over and over again. He was a commercial airline pilot and decided to move to L.A. to pursue his dream of writing and directing. He started out as a PR person for the LAPD and then started getting some gigs consulting on some police shows like Dragnet. And in 1960, he started pitching the idea of Star Trek to the studios. But no one really believed in it. And for six years, he kept pitching it and pitching it until six years later in 1966, NBC took a chance on him. Uh, the show only lasted three years, but that didn't stop him. He hit the sci-fi lecture circuit as it was going to syndication to evangelize fans about his dream. And he kept pitching the studios to try to get a movie greenlit. And eventually, after all this evangelizing of fans and more and more people finding Star Trek during syndication, and the syndication of Star Trek being a success, Paramount gave him the green light to direct a movie in 1975. But... There were more barriers. A bunch of writers tried different scripts, and Paramount wasn't happy with any of them. And by 1977, they canceled the idea of a movie and planned to return it to a TV series in some form. But Roddenberry was undeterred, and eventually the success of movies like Star Wars and especially Close Encounters led them to believe that Star Trek could work as a movie, and they gave him the green light to produce Star Trek in 1978, 
which they launched with a big press conference and went on to be a commercial success and launch the Star Trek franchise that we know to this day. He believed so heavily in his dream of Star Trek and what Star Trek stood for, and what Star Trek stood for has lasted the test of time. And if it were someone else, they probably would have given up on the idea of Star Trek early on when they didn't see that anyone wanted, and certainly after it failed the first time. But he stuck to it and kept doing it over and over again and trying it in new forms and pitching in new ways and building a customer base. And this is what whole brands do really well. They stick to the original idea, but they just pivot tactically depending on the way the circumstances are at the time. And this is what a lot of brands that were successful during the pandemic did. They stuck to their original purpose, their original vision, their original idea of what they wanted to solve in the world and just reinterpreted in new ways under the current conditions. To recap, we talked about the loyalty continuum, starting with no brand lands, which tend to be small brands that are stuck working in the business rather than on the business and never develop a solid idea of who they are. Then we have leaky brands, which also tend to be small brands that have some basic identifiers like a logo and a tagline that doesn't mean much, maybe some names and brochures, but there is no consistency and nothing that ties everything together. Then we have the average Joe brands, which tend to be large companies with no strategies that are constantly going in different directions. Then we have iconic brands that are easily recognizable, the ones with big budgets that are fault brands but don't have a truly passionate following. And then we have cult brands that are the ones that have mastered the art of building meaningful relationships, where the customer is not only king but part of the family. They're one of us. And then we talked about cult brands and destructive versus benign cults, where destructive cults are of an authoritarian figure with no accountability and that the only trait they have in common with benign cults is the level of devotion, where cult brands and benign brands, they have leaders that are accountable and value feedback, they're inclusive and welcome anyone who wants to belong. They fill the emotional needs of their followers in a positive way, and they create these co-authored experiences where it isn't just about the followers. It's not a flip of destructive cult. It's a two-way relationship where each side gets a benefit just like any good relationship. We talked about extreme loyalty that cult brands create and two primary ways they do it is through creating a sense of belonging where they create a shared emotional experience with a group of people which is really important when we see all this disconnect happening in society right now and they also create a feelings of self-actualization where they help the customers become who they see themselves to be even if it's just in a small way that improves some area of their their daily life and another area of importance is this idea of resilience. Cult brands truly believe in what they do. They believe in what they stand for. So it helps them waver the tough times and stick to the path they created rather than going in a completely different direction and destroying the brand. In the next episode, we'll answer the question, why do loyalty programs fail? We'll look at the main ways brands misuse them and how you can create true loyalty for your brand beyond the use of a program. If you found this episode interesting, please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Aaron Shields, and I hope you go out there and make business matter. 